America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Europe. Our guest is European Parliament Secretary General Klaus Vella. The Parliament's Bureau appointed Mr. Vella as Secretary General in 2009. Prior to heading the Parliament's administration as Secretary General, Mr. Vella held numerous positions within the Parliament, including Head of the Cabinet of the President and Director General of Internal Policies. He previously led the European and Foreign Policy Department for the Christian Democratic Union of Germany and is a veteran of the German Air Force. Mr. Vella holds a degree in economics from the University of Wittenherdica in Germany. The origins of the European Parliament date to the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1951. The treaty, which entered into force in 1952, joined Belgium, France, Italy, the Federal Republic of Germany, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands as the European Coal and Steel Community, or ECSC. Members from each nation were elected by national parliaments to represent member states' interests in discussion at a common assembly. The ECSC's main purpose was, as stated by the Schumann Declaration, to eliminate the age-old opposition of France and Germany in order to give rise to cooperation and peace among European countries. It was the origin of all European Union institutions. In the following decades, over ten ratified treaties evolved the Common Assembly into the European Parliament. The Parliament is one of the European Union's seven main institutions, including the European Council, the Council of the European Union, or the Council, the European Commission, the Court of Justice of the European Union, and the European Central Bank. Today, the European Parliament is the only directly elected European Union institution. The over 700 members of the Parliament are elected every five years by universal suffrage. The Parliament works alongside the Council to adopt and amend legislation and set the EU budget. The Parliament also examines EU institutions and promotes democratic decision-making and human rights in Europe and around the globe. The European Union is the primary political and economic union that joins European nations to each other. While the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, is the security alliance that ties the United States and Canada to 28 nations in Europe and Western Asia. The EU and NATO have 21 members in common. But the overlap may grow as Finland and Sweden consider joining NATO in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We welcome Secretary General Vella today to discuss the European Parliament's role in governing Europe, its priorities in response to the security and humanitarian crisis caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the future of transatlantic cooperation. Secretary General Klaus Vella, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Great pleasure on my side. Well, I think we, we have a lot to talk about, so we should dive right in, I, I imagine. We witnessed this this brutal invasion of Ukraine and the and the humanitarian catastrophe that the EU is, is so involved in in terms of trying to mitigate the humanitarian cat catastrophe. I think it's really brought to light the European Union's role in, in geopolitical competitions that are important to security and, and, and prosperity. And I, I thought I might just ask you a general question and then apply it to, to Ukraine about about how you view the EU's role in geopolitical competitions and, and how you've seen it evolve as, as Secretary General. Mm -hmm. I think this uh, crisis has brought to light that uh, when it's really tough, the member states are all rallying around the European Union. So the European Union is the place where they're all coming together. And even though in some policy areas in foreign affairs, we are still based on anonymity, on, anonymity, on an anonymous decision, we did show that the 27 could agree, and they could agree on quite serious measures on Russia. Uh, for example, uh, the most severe sanction package that has ever been passed on any country around the world, uh, which violated the global order. We are just about to completely revise our energy policy. There is already a decision with, which is a ban on uh, coal from Russia, and we are very, very close, probably a week away, or two maybe for a very similar decision on, on Russian oil. But also the solidarity shown in this situation was something an individual country would not have been able to do. So millions of Ukrainian people, mostly women, children and elderly, have been welcomed in the European Union under very special condition, which means they can work right away, they get support right away, they get healthcare right away. Uh, that wouldn't have been possible without that. And if individual countries then are put under pressure, like we've seen yesterday with Poland and Bulgaria, which are cut off now from Russian gas, solidarity is kicking in right away. Well, so I think it has been impressive. You know, I, I think it's quite clear that, that Vladimir Putin was wrong in many of his assumptions. He expected, I think, first and foremost, disunity, disunity within European countries, disunity within the EU. And and disunity in the transatlantic relationship. I, I wonder if you might also comment about the transatlantic dimension of, of, the, of the relationship between the EU and, and, uh, and the United States in, in particular, and, and how you've seen that evolve uh, during this crisis. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, probably what happened to Afghanistan uh, was seen as an encouragement for action. And probably also some of the issues we've been having, including Brexit, has been seen as an encouragement that now we are weak. But in fact, the opposite has happened. Uh, the, the interchange between the European Union, and now I mean the European Union and its institutions, not just the individual member states, but really the European institutions and the US administration is now happening on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day. Uh, I know from my colleagues uh, in the other institutions that they sometimes have the impression that now the connection might be even stronger between Brussels and Washington than between Brussels and some of its member states. So we really can't complain that's uh, perfect uh, and it's showing uh, that the transatlantic community is not only there, it's alive and it's thriving. And it's the only thing that protects us in these kind of crises. Klaus, thank you. I, I think that, of course, Russia is going to continue to try to divide uh, as they they have made this attempt uh, recently by cutting off hydrocarbon exports to 
Bulgaria and Poland. It's encouraging to hear you say, though, that the European Union is going to make a decision on, on Russian hydrocarbon imports in, in the next uh, week or two. I wonder if you might also comment on the relationship between the EU and NATO. Of course, the threat from Russia, uh, or what we might call Mr. Putin's playbook, includes not only military aggression, but also cyber threats and cyber-enabled information warfare, a sustained campaign of political subversion across the continent, and and, and of course, the use of, of an international criminal enterprise. And NATO is, is a political and military organization, but it's, it's focused on the military dimension, the military arena. Do you, do you foresee closer coordination uh, with NATO uh, on the horizon? And, and what are the EU's and, and your priorities in, in, in improving that coordination to cope in particular with what some people call Russian new generation warfare? I think your question is very timely because just this morning, uh, we had the leaders of the different political groups in the European Parliament, so the different parties we are having, our case seven, not two, which is not necessarily making things more complicated, sometimes it's less complicated, uh, but they had a meeting and I've been participating in that together with the president, with uh, uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg. So they had a debate uh, more than one hour on the current conflict and there was anonymity in the strategic evaluation uh, across all political groups uh, from left to right um, and uh, the unity could not be stronger. And the Secretary General said also very clearly, let's not forget that more than 90% of the citizens of the European Union are coming from NATO countries. And if we are looking at what decisions might be taken relatively soon, not for us to speculate, but in Finland and in Sweden, that figure can only go up. So uh, de facto, uh, we are extremely close. And I would also argue we are complementary. Uh, I know that in the, the experts debate, uh, there is now a debate under the heading of the weaponization of everything. So it's not just traditional warfare with military equipment, but in order to go through such a struggle, you also need to be able to use all the other tools that might be needed in this, uh, starting from sanctions, uh, let's say uh, creating your own economic uh, independence, technology is crucial. And uh, the European Union right now has already passed five sanction packages very comprehensively on Russia. And the sixth one is in preparation. For example, there is no, uh, no overflight rights anymore for Russian ships, for, for Russian airplanes. Russian ships are not allowed to, uh, to land in, uh, to, to arrive in, in, in European ports. Technology, which might be crucial for the exploitation of gas and oil in Russia, is is banned and not speaking about the huge measure of putting 300 billion of the Russian central bank into the reserve, which was basically the war chest, uh, which was prepared for these kind of situations. So in fact, NATO is very, very strong on the military side where we are not, but we are getting better. We are providing 1.5 billion already in weapons deliveries uh, to Ukraine from a European Union fund who would have thought that a couple of years ago. Uh, we are doing a lot of research now in the area of defense and there's a lot of the coordination on who is delivering which kind of weapons happening through European Union channels, even though that might not be, uh, that might not be so visible. So in fact, in times of weaponization of everything, NATO is very strong on the hardware side 
Uh, but the European Union has the tools on sanctions, on energy di diversification, uh, which uh, over the midterm is going to weaken Russia in a very fundamental way. So in fact, uh, we are full partners. We are working very, very closely. There is no competition. Uh, we are complementary institutions uh, which are working hand in hand. Plus, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I really think the integration of all elements of power are essential to, to, to promote peace and restore peace, essentially, now, and, and, uh, and promote prosperity. And it's clear, I think, from this conflict that, it, that economic security is directly connected to, to national security. And I wonder if you might talk about really how the EU is thinking about longer-term economic policies, particularly in the energy sector. I think it's quite clear now that, that giving Russia coercive power over Europe's economy uh, by overdependence on on Russian hydrocarbons was was a mistake. And do you, what, what shifts do you see in energy policy and and in particular uh, the integration of of energy security uh, with uh, with the, the the sustained effort to reduce man made carbon emissions? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the European Union has taken a clear engagement, which means we want to be carbon neutral in 2050. Uh, because we have to be, because if we don't deliver that uh, at that moment in time, how can we expect these efforts from the developing world? And if we are not delivering on this, uh, it means that uh, the temperature increase will just go into unsustainable areas, which would also lead to additional crises. If we are thinking, for example, about Africa, where already large parts nowadays are inhabitable. If those, if those areas would increase, we can all imagine uh, what, would be, what would be the consequences. Of course, there are now effects from the Ukraine war, uh, the Russian aggression on Ukraine. Personally, I expect uh, mainly two. One is an acceleration uh, of renewables. So we'll go more quickly into that direction. But I think also probably we will use more than originally expected coal because there's less dependency on Russia. We know that coal is more polluting than gas. It's about double uh, uh, polluting as gas. But if we go forward more quickly on renewables, that's kind of compensated. So I would expect um, renewables to be accelerated, the introduction, coal coming in, some member states might also uh, re-evaluate the use of nuclear. Uh, the choice of your energy resource is um, in the sovereign right of the member states. So that's absolutely possible that it's going to happen. But it will not derail us from the aim to be carbon neutral in 2050. Um, there will be a short-term adaptation to make us uh, more independent. And even a country like Germany, which is quite dependent on Russian gas right now, has said, ready to phase out coal immediately, ready to phase out oil uh, before the end of this year, ready to phase out Russian gas in the next uh, roughly two years. And that's a long-term decision with long-term effects on Russia. Once you've done that, there's no way back. Uh, and therefore, I believe that the consequences for Russia uh, of, this, uh, of this aggression um, will last for long be, uh, beyond uh, the current aggression, beyond the current war. Uh, they cannot be easily reversed. And anyhow, the trust is broken. And to change the energy delivery to Russia will be extremely costly. 
because the pipelines are not there from northern Russia, from, from the northern Siberia, uh, where are the fields for the Europeans. And also, uh, you are not in a very good bargaining position if you've basically one customer left, and that customer is called China. Uh, so it might be that they have to sell uh, beyond below the cost uh, it costs them themselves uh, to get access to oil and gas. So that means that uh, the times of profitable use of oil and gas for Russia uh, might be over. So I think there are two recent experiences that are instructive. I think in, in the U.S., it's clear that the largest ever reduction in man-made carbon emissions occurred with the availability of, of cheap natural gas from uh, from fracking, from shale oil. Uh, and, and also, I think we should learn from the experience of Germany, which took this leap, right, this leap away from hydrocarbons, it hoped, but certainly away from nuclear and, uh, and kind of leapt, leapt off a cliff a little bit in terms of uh, energy security. Uh, what do you think about natural gas as a bridge? And I know the EU has been talking more and more about it. You mentioned it, but but nuclear should play a very big role, especially next generation nuclear, uh, because next generation nuclear is also important to accessing hydrogen as an en energy source in the long term. Is there some some rethinking about natural gas as a bridge away from coal? Because as you mentioned, we're burning more coal now at the rate. You know, each one of these plants burns a ton of coal every minute. Um, and and uh, is there rethinking about about the, the overall strategy with maybe more of an emphasis on natural gas and shale oil? Right. We, we know the Russians actually have have paid quite a bit of money to environmental groups to, to lobby against shale oil and to perpetuate dependence on Russia broadly. Uh, what are the prospects of, of a big shift in, in energy policy in Europe? Mm -hmm. Um, as I said, this, uh, the, the choice of the, uh, of the origin of your en energy consumption, that's a national sovereignty. We see already that uh, definitely France is going to invest heavily into a uh, new kind of nuclear generation with smaller power plants. Um, gas traditionally inside the European Union, a lot came from the Netherlands. They had problems because they're very densely populated and over time this led to artificial earthquakes. But I understand they are ready to uh, continue uh, for a little while uh, to ease the current stress in the market. Um, beyond that, there are huge um, reserves of shale gas, uh, according at least to my information, in France and in Poland and also in Northern Europe. And uh, I believe that probably they will have a very close look at two things. A, production costs, which have very much decreased in last years, uh, in the last five years, as we have seen uh, in the United States. Uh, but secondly, in the public debate, the environmental impact is absolutely crucial. Uh, so there was also progress there. So I believe that many people will have a closer look at this again and see, you know, does, it, does the progress justify to have a fresh look? There were these debates about 10 years ago. There, the answer was negative. Um, environmental arguments, I think, will be crucial. Uh, but it's also clear if we look, for example, um, at the Gulf, uh, we see that this is an area full of tensions and a lot of our dependence is also there. For the moment, Iran and Saudi Arabia have decided to have their war in Yemen. But if they ever should decide to go into more direct confrontation, that could have disastrous consequences also for European energy security. So therefore, I believe that there is a strong argument to find the energy closer to home, 
which brings Northern Africa into play. Um, Italy has already made an agreement uh, with uh, Algeria about a substantial increase of gas that's coming from Algeria. In principle, Northern Africa would also be fantastic for solar energy. It needs a little bit more stability and also cooperation among North African countries to make this really happen. But huge potential over there. It would have the development of the Northern African countries, which would also be good for the stability in Europe. So there is a lot of potential out there for alternatives. And I'm sure that all of them will be freshly evaluated now. You've, you've uh, made the statement that the nations today face a choice, uh, really, between empire or a community of, of law. And what, of course, you're alluding to is uh, the competition, especially with two revanchist, revisionist, authoritarian powers on the Eurasian landmass, Russia and, and China. And our last conversation focused on the competition with China, and, and, and we touched a bit on the economic dimension of it as well. I think it's related to discussion we've been having about energy security because supply chains, as we know, have become quite fragile based on a bias toward efficiency rather than resilience. And in the area of, of rare earths and other minerals that are critical to the transition uh, to renewable sources of energy, China is trying to get a lock on those, on those supply chains. Now, I wonder what your observations are about the nature of the relationship between Russia and China, the danger that that poses, and and what more you know, the citizens in, in our nations, our individual countries and in the EU uh, have to do to compete more effectively with these authoritarian powers from uh, from a defense perspective, maybe, but, but really, especially from an economic perspective? Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe let me first make that argument again. Uh, when you look at, um, at Europe, you basically see Western Europe and Central Europe, which is more or less covered by the European Union. And then you see Eastern Europe with Russia. And indeed, I believe that these are the two fundamental choices that countries have. How do they want to live? Russia, in Russia, you still have uh, the continuity of thinking in terms of empire, uh, not to say colonialization in their immediate neighborhood, which you can see in how they treat their neighbors uh, and how they disrespect human rights. Uh, in Western Europe and in Central Europe, you can see that states are protected by being members of the European Union. It's a rule of law, uh, it's a relationship of equal. Of course, there are smaller and bigger member states, that's sure, but everybody's sovereignty is respected and it's run on the basis of the rule of law. And the space between that is getting extremely thin. Uh, you are seeing that neutrality nowadays doesn't make any sense anymore. How can you be neutral between these two choices? So that's what's uh, sponsoring the debate in Finland and in Sweden, and we're going to see the outcome probably already in May. But that's also why uh, Moldova and Georgia are now rushing together with Ukraine to say we would like to become members of the European Union because we know that they are our statehood is being respected, even though, of course, it means we have to make compromise. So basically, there is just these two which are available, and they are fundamentally different. That's the difference between the 19th century and the, uh, and the 21st century. Um, the question is also, why are these autocracies? Uh, and I think uh, they are autocracies because probably the way they are running their countries is otherwise not sustainable. 
that's surely the case for Russia, uh, but probably also the case for China, where there are in enormous internal tensions between people in Tibet, uh, the Uyghurs, but even between the coastal provinces and, uh, and the others. So the question is, how would this all play out under democratic conditions as we know them? Probably uh, it, would be, it would be very difficult. So I believe, in fact, the Russian problem is exactly that their model cannot compete. Their model is not competitive. For, for the Ukrainians, it's not attractive to join that kind of running a country. Uh, it's attractive, uh, and that's, that sponsored the whole difficulty in 2014 to do an association agreement with the European Union. The Ukrainians decided in 2014 uh, in fact, to topple their government because they were not ready uh, to lose the perspective of integration into the European Union. That's sometimes forgotten, but they know what this means and they've made their choice. And therefore, the Russian offer and the Russian model is not competitive uh, in the greater order of things. I think that you make a really important point here. Oftentimes we hear I would just—I don't know what to call them, except Russian apologists who blame us for Russia's aggression. But I think it's quite clear, based on the invasion of of Ukraine, certainly the invasion of, of Ukraine, <laughs> the first one in two, in uh, 2014, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, now the occupation of of uh, of Belarus that we're that we're seeing now, the the threat to Moldova and these false flag apparently operations in Transnistria, that 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 Putin actually has aspirations that go far beyond what he does in reaction to us. And I, I, it's encouraging to hear you making the case really for, for EU enlargement. What do you think the prospects are of the EU welcoming those countries in uh, into the Union in the near future? Mm -hmm. um, I think the honest answer is that definitely it takes time, but uh, it can go more quickly than it would have gone otherwise. Uh, because the motivation, uh, I think, also in those countries now is enormous to do the necessary adaptations. And sometimes this is tough. Uh, I've been working very closely um, already as Secretary General of this House with former Prime Minister Jerzy Busek, who was President of the European Parliament. And he was heading the Polish government in the early 90s. And that's when they did the major reforms of social security. And once his government was finished, not only did his party uh, not continue in government, but it wasn't going back into parliament. That severe were the efforts they had to do. So it's very tough. It's very tough to reform and restructure your country. But if the goal is there, that's sufficiently attractive, you might be ready to do it. And I think that will now make all the difference uh, for Ukraine, but definitely also for Moldova. Otherwise, I would be very, uh, I would be very surprised. So things could happen much more quickly, and I believe also that a lot of support will be available on the way. So during our conversation in in uh, November of 2021, we were discussing the EU's response to to the competition with an increasingly aggressive. Chinese Communist Party, and I think what we've seen with Russia is, is how maybe many businesses and and uh, and financial institutions undervalued the geostrategic risk of doing business in and and investing in uh, an authoritarian country. Of course, you know, even during the war uh, with, with Ukraine, which the renewed war in in, uh, in that began on February twenty fourth, 
China's become even more aggressive in, in its wolf warrior diplomacy and in helping amplify Russian disinformation. Uh, it's, it's continued its, its cyber espionage and hacking activities. Uh, it's engaged in a, in a campaign of, of economic coercion uh, against Lithuania. And, and so what, what is your prescription? What do you think, what more do you think the EU should do and, and the EU and, and the United States and the free world should do uh, to, to reduce the risk associated with uh, the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and a potential maybe rending of the economic relationships if there's a, a crisis in Taiwan, for example? Yeah. Um, I personally believe that uh, China is now looking very, very carefully on how uh, Russia, Ukraine is playing out. Uh, because to a certain extent that could uh, establish a playbook uh, for the future. And therefore, I think the Western reaction, the strong Western reaction was very, very important and is very, very important. And that this is not a, that this is not a success. Uh, of course, we know that China has developed over the decades. I, I had the privilege or have the privilege to have been able to meet in the past years once a year uh, with Henry Kissinger, who played a crucial role in opening up China and uh, which started these decades of fantastic economic development, which brought hundreds of millions out of poverty. And at a personal experience in 2001, I was allowed to speak to the staff of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China in Dalian. And uh, I was surprised because it was a very open debate. Young people were allowed to take the floor. There were different views. And that explained to me to a certain extent where did the creativity come from in the system that allowed for this economic development. Unfortunately, nowadays, we must have the impression that this freedom, which at least existed within the Communist Party, uh, has been very, very much uh, reduced. Uh, and also the collective leadership, which was probably one of the preconditions for the success of China, uh, is now being replaced more and more by one person who is now probably going to be allowed to have more than two mandates this time. So uh, that's putting some more question marks, even from a Chinese perspective, behind their development. Uh, of course, um, China, uh, without announcing officially, uh, blocked out uh, Lithuania from trade uh, with China. Uh, and uh, the European Union has defended um, Lithuania from the very beginning. Uh, it attacked China in the World Trade Organization. Uh, and uh, also it uh, supports that uh, Lithuania is supporting its companies with state aid uh, to balance out the negative uh, effects uh, that can come from, uh, let's say, from this Chinese uh, behavior. And the European Commission is also uh, looking for uh, um, legislative approval of anti-coercion measures. So when an individual country of the European Union is threatened by a third party, like in this case, uh, in this case Lithuania, that the European Union as a whole uh, can take sanctions against that country. That's in the legislative process. And uh, therefore, uh, I think uh, the European Union is about to take uh, let's say, um, conclusions, uh, which give it the necessary weapons to deal with these kind of, of situations. Well, you know, you've been a, a champion of democracy your, your whole life. And of course, democracy is m messy and ugly in your own country. And my, my second country, which I lived for over six years in Germany, just had a, 
a, a very uh, highly contested election and a new coalition government. We just saw the, the very, uh, I mean, not, not a close election in France, but a, a, but a very, a very uh, vitriolic campaign uh, on, on both uh, the part of uh, uh, President Macron and, and Marine Le Pen, who, who represents a far right party. You mentioned Brexit and, and, um, but, you know, I mean, democracy does have a mechanism for correction short of revolution. I wonder if you might just share with us your prospects for for democracy, how you see uh, our democracies. Of course, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin th- thought we were very weak, as, as we already discussed at the outset. I've, I'm thinking about the the joint statement they issued just before the the Beijing Olympics, in which the message to us was, hey, Europe and, and the United States and Japan and other free and open and democratic societies, you're over, you're finished, right? This is a new era of international relations in which we're in charge, essentially, was the message. But I, I, I'm more hopeful, I'm more confident. I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on mm-hmm. the prospects for democratic governance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we are challenged by authoritarian, if not totalitarian regimes, roughly for the last 100 years, uh, starting with the, the Russian Revolution, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, the Soviet Union, um, what, uh, what's the advantage for us Germans is that we've been resoundingly defeated in World War II. So we could correct, uh, we could firmly anchor ourselves into the democratic community international. The problem on the Russian side is that they were victorious at the end of the day, even though they started the same war in September 1939, uh, with the difference of only three weeks. Uh, and half Poland between Germany and Russia. So in Russia, there is a continuity and that hasn't really stopped uh, to see uh, positively the activities in the past, including the Stalin time, uh, uh, the Great War and the Second World War. So it hasn't profited from this break and this critical reflection of its own imperial past that is the advantage for us Germans because we've lost it so uh, uh, so convincingly uh, in, 19, in 1945. So uh, we also know that in the critical moments, um, it was the United States uh, that saved us, uh, surely in the Second World War, uh, but also against Soviet dominance during the Cold War up to 1989 and 1991. And also the United States have learned the lesson uh, that it better remains engaged because if it's not, it maybe has to come back and the price it's going to pay in money and blood is much higher. Uh, So we have to keep that lesson alive that the democratic uh, states are cooperating very closely. It's true that we are also all challenged. And um, uh, I also can say the... uh, uh, the 6th of January was not a beautiful sight uh, on, on uh, capital. And at least I would have never believed that we could come so close to uh, democracy in the United States being, uh, being challenged. And we have also issues in different European Union uh, countries. Uh, I've always, always tried to invest into this relationship. Uh, I'm now in office for 13 years. One of my first measures was to establish an office of the European Parliament in Washington, D.C. We have 12 staffers there. I have a regular meeting with uh, the clerk of the House, the secretary of the Senate. We discuss during difficult times. We just have a video conference. So we try to 
to, to live this transatlantic relationship and to strengthen each other uh, mutually. I'm deeply convinced that with all difficulties, as you say, democratic systems have the chance to correct. In autocratic systems, you can be the folly of a single person and you might have to pay dearly for that. So I believe with all difficulties, we are also aware of that at the end of the day, democracy will prevail. And we see that we use the opportunity after 1989-1991 to enlarge the democratic space a thousand or maybe more than a thousand kilometers to the east. That's not that's what's now, let's say, under 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 threat. But we enlarged it uh, heavily to the east. So we made use of that opportunity uh, and we enlarged the space of democracy. So no reason to be skeptical, no reason to be pessimistic. But like always, we will have to fight for our freedom. Thus, I do think it's time for us to restore our confidence and maybe reflecting back to, to, to 1989 to 1991 helps us do that a, a bit. I, Of course, this is what the people in those countries wanted, is they wanted freedom. They wanted to say in how they're governed. And you know, I had the great pr- privilege, Klaus, I think I've told you this before, of, of, of being in the regiment that patrolled the east-west German border, centered on, on Coburg. Um, and, and our troopers, the, the troop that I would command later, I was patrolling that border on in November of 1989 when we yeah. went from one moment staring down East German border guards to the next moment seeing tens and then hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of East Germans streaming across that border bearing bouquets of flowers and bottles of wine. And of course, there were hugs and tears of joy. And I think we need to, to restore a bit of that confidence these days. And and can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing to restore confidence in democratic institutions and uh, and and what your prognosis is for the future of, of democracy in other places as well? I mean, I, I think we've all been a little bit disappointed in how India's responded to the invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But um, but but are, do you think it's time for us now? Have we bottomed out in terms of our self doubt about democratic institutions and processes? Um, we, the European Parliament has a very long tradition to fight for human rights and democracy. Uh, we have a Zakharov Prize, uh, which is named after Andrei Zakharov, uh, with the agreement of his uh, widow, uh, Yelena Bonner, which we give every year uh, to uh, people who, who stand out there, like the Belarusian opposition or, uh, uh, you know, others who are fighting, who are fighting for freedom. But we are also doing uh, practical help. Uh, that's why Ukraine for us is not really coming as something sudden or as uh, as a surprise. We are supporting Ukrainian democracy for more than 10 years. Uh, we have been supporting uh, when uh, democratic leaders were in jail uh, by the former president uh, of Ukraine, Yanukovych, sending delegations there, making sure that they were not mistreated. And we've also been bringing together the different political parties in Ukraine uh, in fact, in the house of Jean Monnet, one of our founders close to Paris, and said, look, uh, these are majority rights, but please also think about minority rights. Democracy is not just about the 51%, it's also about the 49, the 30, the 15, the 10%, and their rights also have to be respected. We are doing similar activities uh, with Balkan countries, uh, with North Africans, if they are interested. In fact, we have a whole directorate in parliament administration on democracy promotion. So uh, we are doing that. 
Uh, we are internationally engaged. The European Parliament has delegations around the world. Uh, we are passing human rights resolution every single session. Uh, that means that uh, sometimes we are not very happy with all the uh, very, uh, let's say governments are not very happy with us around the world, but the democratic opposition is, and the human rights activists are, and they know they have a solid voice uh, in the European Parliament and, uh, and we are with them because the rights we enjoy, we want that also other people can enjoy. Klaus, you've really already answered this question because you've addressed this tension between the need for multinational coordination and cooperation within international organizations like the European Union. And, and, and sometimes there's intention with sovereignty. And of course, that's been, been a big theme uh, within the EU in, in recent years. And it's what has led to a great deal of skepticism in the United States recently uh, mm -hmm. about international organizations. Of course, the Secretary General of the UN has just visited uh, Russia and, and Ukraine, but the UN doesn't seem to be quite strong because of the ability of Russia and China to obstruct within the Security Council, for example. International organizations have been deliberately subverted right, by those who have other agendas of the World Health Organization and China or the Human Rights Council. Um, could you maybe help explain to Americans just the overall value of inter international organizations, what they can achieve? You mentioned quite a bit about it already, but I think sometimes the EU gets judged by an unfair standard. You know, I think as a historian, I think back to 1945 and say the outlook in 1945 was not great. You know, and and actually, um, the European Union has probably far exceeded expectations that anyone would have had uh, in the wake of World War II. So. So maybe for the skeptical Americans, could you explain the importance of organizations like the EU and 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 why Americans should care about them and 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 uh, and see the benefit? Yeah. Uh, look, our argument is that in fact, a pooling sovereignty in the European Union is making individual member states more sovereign and not less. What Russia would like is to be able to deal with everybody separately, and then they would be weak. And we know from our historical past that very often weaker states were even swallowed. That's exactly what happened between World War I and World War II with all the smaller states that were created between Germany and Russia. Uh, so in fact, the European Union is the guarantee for the continued existence of all its member states, for its protection, for the rule of law. And together we are stronger uh, we have a market of 440 uh, for 440 million citizens. Uh, we are arguably maybe uh, one of the strongest, if not the strongest regulatory power around the world, at least in times where the US Congress can't agree among themselves. <laughs> you see, gives us a bit of competitive advantage. Um, so we are strong. Uh, we are strong in these fields. We are one of the biggest donors in in development aid as well. Um, but basically, uh, the member states do what they do. But if they find out that they can't do it on their own anymore, they pull that sovereignty on the European Union level, and then together we are strong. So we are in a process of slow growth. Uh, we've been established by sovereign states. But so has the United States of America. It's nowadays forgotten, but there were 13 sovereign states which came to the conclusion that their interests are better defended to create the United States of America, which it, which is why we have the United States in the plural and not a state, the United States of America. 
Uh, and our history is a bit similar. I'm not saying the outcome will be the same, but it's sovereign states who have freely decided that their interests are better served together. And we have the European Parliament representing the citizens elected in direct elections, 440 million people, one of the biggest elections around the world. We have the Council of Ministers representing the state, a bit like your Senate. And only when these two together are coming together, we are passing laws. And our commission is a bit like your administration. And our European Council is a bit like a kind of collective presidency, um, not an imperial presidency, but nevertheless, a body capable to take decisions in times of, in times of stress. So I would argue uh, that um, the European Union is helping to make its member states more, more sovereign, more solid, more capable to act, more able to defend itself. And we see in times of crisis, also for the United States, it's much better to have one solid partner than to have to deal with 27 different entities. Well, th thank you so much. I think that really places the, the European Union in context. And uh, what I'd like to do is just give you the final word. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our, with our viewers and our, and our listeners? No, I would just like to, to thank you for this, uh, for this unique opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm really a big believer in that relationship between the European Union, Europe, and the United States. Uh, because if these two continental democracies are coming together, and I may be convincing other continental democracies like India or the Japanese or the others to join, I think we are, do not have to be afraid about the future. And let me also say that Stanford is a great place where you are. I once had the privilege to spend there uh, two weeks and I really uh, enjoyed that uh, uh, very, very much. Uh, I'm looking forward uh, to come back one day. Klaus Vella, on behalf of the Hoover Institution and Stanford University, thank you for helping us learn more about how we can, we can work together to restore peace, promote prosperity, build confidence in, in our democracies, and, and build a better future for generations to come. Pleasure to see you. My pleasure. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.